As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations, find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Quote of the morning came from Stuart Kaiser. It came actually yesterday evening as I was sitting there on the Bloomberg it dropped from City in the inbox and it read as follows. Timing is the key word for markets. He went on to say, for data, will inflation crest before growth deteriorates and let the FOMC deal with those risks to its mandate separately? For markets, how long an investable window is there between those two waves of economic risk? Stuart joins us right now. Stuart, awesome to catch up. Let's start there. I think it's really important. I've heard it a couple of times over the last week now, the sequencing of what happens with growth and inflation and what rolls over more quickly and what rolls over first. Where are we now? It's a great question. Good morning. Uh, you know, I think the, the challenge here is I think when the Fed started hiking, they were hoping inflation would sort of already have crested by now and they would sort of, you know, be able to deal with the growth weakness as it came. As Lisa mentioned, housing has started to slow down. That's kind of one of those early indicators that growth is going to slow down in the future. You know, I think what the Fed is hoping and markets are hoping is we had a softer print last week. We'll get a softer print hopefully in December and that'll be evidence that that inflation started to come down at a time when unemployment is still sub 4%, right? And that's kind of a, a really nice balance for the Fed, especially because based on lags of monetary policy, we haven't seen their rate hikes really hit the economy yet, right? So they really need this inflation problem to get under control before that starts to happen. You mentioned that investable window. Is that basically the window before growth collapses? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I, mean, I think it is, right? It's, it's the window between, hey, inflation looks like it's peaked, the Fed can back off on rate hikes, and uh-oh, you know, the unemployment rate is rising and other, other forms of economic growth are slowing, exactly. How well can you actually time this market, though, if you're looking at something that is flip-flopped by, you know, 10% in a week? I, I mean, I, I don't think you can. And I think that's why the investable windows are really, really short. Um, it's why, you know, you're not taking uh, victory laps or kind of riding positions too long. I think clients are in and out of positions as quickly as possible, you know, just for that reason. Um, it does feel like the market's moving data point to data point at this at this time. And I think that's why right now are people are already asking what are non-fond payrolls going to look like in early December? What is that inflation print going to look like in December? December, the markets are pricing almost a 2.8% S&P move on the CPI in the middle of December. So it just gives you a sense of how much risk is priced for that day already, you know, sitting here. And we're not even to Thanksgiving. Is it easier to look longer term, especially at the leadership? And we were talking to Lori Calvacina about the leadership and the rally that we've seen in big tech recently over the past couple of sessions. And she sees that it could be sustainable. Do you agree that there is some sort of return, the rise of the big tech behemoths as leaders? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I don't think we're. I don't think I'm behind that fully yet. I, there could be. It could not be. I think it's just, it's impossible to tell. I mean, look, 
tech should work if the pressure from rates eases a bit. I think the challenge with tech for me at this point is the beginning of the year, this was a valuation discussion, right? We're going to push yields higher. That's going to push PEs down for the NASDAQ. Third quarter earnings were not about valuation, right? Those are about actual fundamentals and what's going on in growth, what's going on with Amazon, Facebook, everybody laying off employees. So I think the question here for tech is, if I take that pressure off from rates, do I get a valuation re-rating? Or do people take a step back and say, I need to see how this, this cost-cutting initiative plays out? Which is why it's, I think tech is a really tricky trade right here, just for that reason. I keep going back to this Brian Chesky tweet. John, I mean, you brought this up and I keep thinking about it. Yeah, it feels like we were in a nightclub and the lights just turned on. And I keep thinking about this in terms of- I need Brian to tell me what happens when the light goes on. (laughs) Oh yeah, because you have no idea. Clearly, it's obviously very true. I'm curious though, what else is there that's going to get exposed, John? Well, how, how big is the iceberg? is basically what I'm trying to work out and everybody's trying to work out. And I saw all those comments over Twitter over the weekend. How big is the iceberg? Let's talk about crypto, for instance, and I think this is the big question right now. To what degree have we had widespread institutional adoption? With that in mind, how much scope is there for contagion from that asset class across to traditional asset classes? And the number one question I'm filled in right now is for people that never touch crypto, never touch Bitcoin, and they want to understand what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me? And what are the risks around these stories right now? What are they? What are you telling clients? Look, I think, I think that question really relates to what is the Fed going to break? Essentially, you had 10 years of easy monetary policy. You've now hiked massively over a short period of time. And I think a lot of clients are thinking, well, if they're able to hike this much over a short time, not create a hard landing in the economy and not break any asset classes, that's going to be you know, the accomplishment of a lifetime. So, you know, crypto was one that people have pointed to, and that was a beneficiary of easy money. Um, you know, is that is that the evidence? Is it something like the yen? Is it is it easy credit? Is it housing? And this is why it's just very hard to sort of step in and say over a medium term horizon, I'm comfortable owning risk here because we haven't had sort of that moment, right? That moment where an asset class that you didn't expect to kind of come under pressure has. So it's it's a great question. How big is it? I mean, you've seen the size of the balance sheet. <laughs> you know, you've seen, you know, negative rates in Europe. Um, you've seen crypto go where it went. You've seen tech performance where it was. I mean, if there's an iceberg, it's fairly big, right? Because all of these trends have been extremely powerful and for an extended period of time. So I think that's why a lot of clients haven't fully re-risked and why they're not fully bought in yet, because there's a sense that there is something out there that, that hasn't worked itself out yet. We hear from economists that we haven't built up that much excess. We've been asking on this program, what are you talking about? The excess of the last two years or the excess of the last decade? What is the excess we need to unwind? The last two years or the last 10? I mean, I, I, has to, I would say it's the last 10, right? I mean, I, those are two, two separate topics. I think the last two years to me is much more a fiscal discussion of how much money the government spent. The last 10 years is much more a monetary discussion in terms of, in terms of you know, easier monetary policy. So, I mean, do you have to unwind all of that? Probably not, but you do have to unwind, I think, a portion of it. And the question I think there, for equities, that was a discussion about valuation, particularly of growth stocks and tech. And a lot of that got sort of dealt with earlier in the year. I think what a lot of clients struggle with is who have been the biggest beneficiaries of easy monetary policy? Um, you know, what have they invested in? <laughs> and have we seen what they've invested in kind of re-rate itself? And there's some questions out there. Real estate in particular, I think, is one people are really, really focused on. Um, and ultimately, yeah, we're just going to have to see how this plays out. But again, this is why I think it's hard to say, yeah, all clear. Once inflation peaks, we're good to go. Because again, if monetary policy acts with somewhere between a six and 18 month lag, depending on who you talk to, what was the Fed doing 12 months ago? 
right? The Fed was at zero 12 months ago and they were buying bonds. So, you know, while we've hiked a bit, the uh, real estate market has weakened a bit. You know, there's a case to be made that a very small portion of this t- portion of this tightening has hit the markets, um, other than maybe FCI, which is just the market itself anyway. Isn't that a scary thought? Um, if it wasn't holiday season, it would be. You know, <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that he hasn't written his review and he's not going to. And he's just basically coming on here to explain why a year ahead view is not necessary and he can go home and enjoy his holidays. You should write the year ahead outlook <laughs> yes. in March. I say it all the time. Just they write do. it at the end of the first quarter. You also write it in November. The new forecast. <laughs> Stuart Kaiser City. Stuart, it's great to see you again in Thank person you. in the studio. Diane Swung, Chief Economist at KPMG and charged with following some of the Fed speak. Dan, can we start with Governor Waller yesterday evening in Australia? What did you make of his latest comments and the pushback seemingly against the market action? I think we're going to see more of it. I think what you see with the Fed is, you know, they've agreed to do more measured rate hikes, but they're as they close in on a terminal rate. But they still think that terminal rate, the peak in short term rates, is higher than they did just a few months ago. And they're going to stick to that kind of language for some time. I think we're going to also see when we see the PCE index, because of that weird medical cost deceleration in the CPI, the PCE index, which is a day before the Fed meets in December, that when that's released, it's going to show a little hotter core CPI. And the Fed's going to feel pretty justified about continuing to raise rates, although at a 50 basis point pace instead of a 75 basis point pace. And the Fed also doesn't like to see financial market conditions easing right now when they're still trying to tighten. I know that sounds strange, but the bottom line is this is undoing much of the forward guidance that the Fed has worked so hard to establish. Feels like that summer rally on repeat, and I think Governor Waller alluded to the problems that come about from that. We put some numbers just on the SCP that might come out in the middle of December. In fact, it will come out in the middle of December. We put some numbers on that, Diane. We saw the SCP and the dot for 2023 move from 380 to 460. I thought that was a major jump it was a big jump. Are you expecting something similar, something similar in the December meeting, 460 and to what? Well, we did have six participants at that meeting that had 5% as the high end of that um, that range. And so I would expect to see those six participants to move above 5%. And we could see that SCP, the high end of that rate, move slightly above 5% as well. Our expectation now is that the high end of the range is five and a quarter percent, which is 5.125 in the middle of the target range. But I think that's important to remember is that we already had six participants at the meeting in September looking to go higher than what the SCP was telling us. Diane, you mentioned the medical costs, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but there was a glitch or a strange uh, confluence of numbers in the latest CPI report. If you back out that health caring component, what does CPI look like? Well, the CPI, certainly the underlying inflation members numbers look like they're beginning to peak, which is the good news. And I'm actually much more optimistic that we're going to see a disorderly or a welcome sort of deceleration in shelter costs as we get into 2023 much more quickly than the Federal Reserve expects. That said, this is still a number that's too hot for the Fed and not low enough for the Fed to feel like, you know, the war is over. And I think that's very important that the Fed still feels like they still have to go higher on rates to cool inflation. And it's still too hot of an inflation rate for them to stop thinking about 
the pain that might accompany it, which is a rise in the unemployment rate. We were just talking with Jerome Schneider of PIMCO about how this feels like it could be a prolonged downturn. Even if it's shallow, it's going to last a long time. Do you adhere to that kind of view that perhaps the worst case scenario of a severe downturn seems taken off the table a little bit more, but that it could be a very long time before we see meaningful growth at levels that we'd seen over the past decade? I think it's going to be, a, you know, every recession is different. Our own expectations are for a moderate recession of a couple of quarters without a robust rebound in the second half of 2023, and then really gaining momentum in the end of 2024. So as a prolonged period of weakness, that is what we are seeing. That said, we're only talking about a high in the unemployment rate nipping close to 6%. That is really low for an unemployment rate for a recession. There's a lot of reasons for that, none the least of which is the aging of the population and the loss of participation by those over 65. Those are going to be holding the participation rate down and the overall unemployment rate down. But this is a very different kind of recession, disproportionately hitting housing, some spillover into consumer spending. Business investment will be hit, but unevenly. We've got the ramp up of electric via electric battery pants going on. We've got subsidies for chip plants going on. Those are ramping up much more quickly than the infrastructure spending bill, which was passed sooner. And that's not going to hit until we get into well into 2024 and 2025. And just out of interest, if the Democrats hold on to the House... And they may well do. I've got no idea what happens here. Everyone's still talking about gridlock. But ultimately, things have shifted the other way more recently. Would that change your outlook at all? I think the biggest change in the outlook is the risks of, you know, battle over the debt ceiling and what that would mean at a time when the Fed's still raising rates. You know, we already had the debacle of 2011 and the debt ceiling debate back then. To take that off the table, I think, is good news. Now, whether or not it means more stimulus or more stimulus if we hit a downturn, I still think that we're limited in fiscal space. So I'm not sure that it actually means more stimulus out there. It certainly I don't think they're going to have an easy path to any kind of changes in policy, which is a bit unfortunate because we need to make some major decisions on policy that I believe need to be bipartisan in scope. And I don't see that no matter what the outcome is either way. Diane, fantastic as always to catch up with you. Diane Swank there of KPMG. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Priya Misra joins us now, the head of global rate strategy at TD Securities. Priya, it's the question that every strategist fears right now. How's the 23 outlook coming along? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, every year it's tough, but I would say this year, 
we're debating the economic outlook, inflation, growth. I actually think uh, that the growth outlook will become more interesting as, as we go into 23. And the Fed reaction function. We normally don't have uncertainty on all these aspects, plus a fairly liquid market positioning. I mean, just look at the uh, the reaction on Thursday. I think it tells you it's it's never easy, but I think this year is particularly hard. You're supposed to take these outlooks with a pinch of salt or a fistful of salt and be nimble. So, um, but but we're all going to be writing it over the next uh, you know couple of weeks. Do you have any convictions whatsoever, Priya? You know, I do think I I, th- I think liquidity is important. Um, you know, so I think making sure that you've got enough liquid assets so that you're not forced to sell what you don't want to sell. I think that is, uh, I, I would say, a theme that we've had this year. I, th- I think that continues. The other big conviction I have is I know the, the, the data right now is still strong. Um, um, you know, we, we think inflation is going to be, it's it's less about the peak. It's how quickly it's going to decline. So I think we're going to move from whether we've peaked to that pace of decline. If the pace of decline is shallow, which is actually our, our call here, the Fed's going to stay restrictive for longer. And, and so a recession is almost a done deal. So we've got these views around sticky inflation, recession. It's timing that, trading that. That's going to be hard. I still like 10-year treasuries. I mean, I don't know why we moved 30 basis points on Thursday. So that can absolutely be undone a little bit. But I think owning some duration risk, which has been shunned by investors all through this year, I think it's actually it actually makes sense to start to position for duration coming back. Um, you know, the 10-year the should not be around 4% if you're heading into a recession. Priya, I'm not going to let that go. I have no idea why it rallied 30 basis points uh, on Friday or on Thursday, rather Friday, the bond market was closed. So what do you do with these types of moves? How do you understand them in terms of positioning a liquidity standpoint and what that means in terms of coming up with some sort of trade? So as Governor Wallace said, you know, to be calm, to to breathe. I think that's actually good advice. The market has been extremely volatile. You know, when we track standard deviation of 10-year changes, this is the highest we've seen, including the 70s, in terms of how much the 10-year, tra- when the risk-free rate moves that much, you can just imagine positioning the importance of flows. I think understanding that the market is not as liquid, dealers have constrained capacity. I think that's important, which is why you're supposed to keep some cash. I think bills are actually attractive. You keep money in the front end uh, to to make sure that if the moves are excessive, you don't have to sell, there's no fire sale, you can potentially put money to work. I think being nimble, I think all of this is, uh, you know, we shouldn't see this as a one-off, maybe positioning was, was particularly exaggerated. I see it as a structural issue and something I think we have to get used to, particularly because we have a data-dependent Fed. It's very different from when forward guidance was there. You could actually expect volatility to stay low. I think volatility stays high all through next year. It's just the market focus will shift from inflation to growth. With that in mind, Priya, how much influence does this Fed have on the long end, on the 10-year? You know, I actually think they do. I don't know why they don't talk as much about QT. They're letting about 100 billion of treasuries and mortgages run off the balance sheet every single month. I think that's the reason why the long end of the treasury curve has underperformed. There's a lot more supply. There's mortgages, which are also long duration. And the market's looking for that marginal buyer. So I do think that they have control. Um, You know, at some point, I do think QT is going to end. Once they start to ease, we actually have them starting to ease. I know I just talked about sticky inflation, but if the unemployment rate is at 5% or higher and inflation's getting down to 3%, we actually think then the trade-off will look, uh, will start to skew the Fed towards rate cuts. And I think if the Fed starts to cut rates, they're going to stop QT. And so while people think that's really a front-end trade, no, if quantitative tightening stops, I think the 10-year has a lot more room to go. So I do think that 
they have control over the long end. They just don't talk about that control a whole lot. Priya, when you press send on that Outlook, come and see us, right? Priya Misra of TD Securities, thank you. Laurie Calvacina, Head of US Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley talking about the volatile path back to 3,900 after maybe testing something like 3K in the first quarter. Laurie, earnings risk. Can you walk us through where you see the earnings risk in the economy right now for corporate America and where you expect that to land? Sure. It's a great question, John. And let me let me say, look, I don't think we're out of the woods on earnings yet. That being said, I do think it's possible that markets put in the ultimate low in October because three to six months before uh, you get the final earnings downgrades is typically when the stock market bottoms in big sort of challenge periods. But just kind of backing up from that, I think we're at 208 for next year on earnings. I think the consensus is still tracking around, say, 232, 233. Um, you know, what we really have baked in is moderating inflation, which is really tanking our revenue number. It doesn't really end up helping margins. We find that margins are really more of a function of wages where we've still got some wage growth baked in on things like productivity, pricing. I think as inflation moderates, that hurts pricing power as well. So we've really got a ratcheting down of earnings and kind of, you know, flattish to slightly down levels with what we saw last year in the S&P 500. This is very similar in our minds to the 2015-2016 backdrop where we just kind of don't really go anywhere on earnings for a few years. Um, But I think, honestly, John, I don't think the street really has a good understanding of how much moderating inflation is going to hurt earnings because of that link to revenues. How much are we going to see the leadership change, Lori, in a sustainable way over the next year? So I think this is a great question, Lisa, and I think this is probably, you know, one of the, the bigger challenges to figure out for next year, frankly. Typically, when you are in a sluggish economic growth backdrop, growth stocks outperform. So that would point you to things like technology, communication services, consumer discretionary. And one of the things our economists have been talking about is that if you when you kind of get out of this short, shallow recession, we're going to see pretty sluggish GDP for a while. I do think, though, that there's a big leadership change afoot here. So I'd be very, very selective in looking at some of those growthy parts of the market. We like tech, but we don't like the others. If you think, though, about kind of the value-oriented sectors, we're starting to hear some people make a growth case for them, things like energy, things like industrials, and you're starting to see some pretty good outperformance in sectors like that over the past month or so. Frankly, energy's been doing great all year, but now we're starting to see that broaden out to some of the other value-oriented sectors. So I would say stay pretty balanced, have a little bit of growth, have some value exposure. I think that's going to work better in the near term anyway. Be balanced and try to be more selective within those buckets as opposed to just leaning into one big bucket for the longer term. Laura, you brought up something about how you are leaning into big tech potentially. And this is one of the big questions over the past week with the tremendous rally. Does it have legs? Can it reassert itself? Are you really in the camp that it can? In terms of the rally, you know, look, I would say I probably share Wilson's view that we're going to be volatile for a bit longer. Um, One of the things we pointed out is that markets in 2022 are really trading on the 2002 path. Um, And if you look at, you know, sort of what happened back then, we had a a January peak, a summer low, a big October low. We rallied back pretty fiercely into Thanksgiving, and then we turned around and gave most of it back going into a new low in March. And so on the one hand, I do see the potential for the rally to continue a little bit in the longer term. I think, frankly, on things like the election, that's already baked in. Um, You know, I, I think there's a lot of people who think the Fed moves have been exaggerated. 
we can save that for another segment. Um, but I, I do think that we're going to chop around. And I think, you know, whether or not you think the rally can continue, sure. I think it can t- continue a bit in the short term. But I do think there's a tremendous risk that we do give a lot of it back in the first quarter. We won't save it for another segment. You can't bring up the Fed and not talk about the Fed, Laurie. <laughs> Let's talk about it now. Jenna Smilik of the New York Times yesterday was live blogging Governor Waller's speech down in Australia. And this is what Governor Waller had to say. The market seems to have gotten way out in front. We're going to need to see a continued run of this kind of behaviour before we really start to think Think about taking our foot off the brake. Laurie, is the Fed still in charge of where this market goes and how far this rally can go to the upside? Well, look, I think I think it was really interesting. You know, we said in our weekly, John, that, you know, we liked what we saw in the CPI print. But the thing we didn't like is we knew the Fed was going to come out and quite quash it with harsh rhetoric. And that's exactly what we ended up getting with Waller. Um, and look, I think that, you know, to some extent, maybe they are losing a little bit of control. Um, I think that they are trying their best to clamp down on the enthusiasm. But I'll tell you, John, I don't think the peak inflation, peak Fed narrative ever really went away. I think that those people just got really, really quiet over the last month or so because they were tired of having their heads ripped off. Well, they're loud now. So I think when we... Yeah, they're loud now because when we saw that CPI print came out, there was a massive sigh of relief. There was a massive sort of uncoiling of enthusiasm. And I sympathize with those who say the market went too far. But at the same time, having talked to a lot of investors that, you know, had been doing work on used car prices and other all the all these other components of inflation coming down. You know, I understand the release that happened. I understand that relief valve that occurred. Laurie, final question. What are you telling clients about what's happening in crypto and what it means for them? even if they're not in the asset class? Yeah, so it, it's a great question, John. You know, I don't cover it. Um, we, we sort of leave that to other people at the firm. But one of the things we have talked about is the extent to which the average retail investor, you know, is involved. And I know I saw a Good Morning Consult poll recently that said about 19% of those that they surveyed owned crypto, um, you know, which tells me that uh, perhaps it's not as pervasive as some fear in terms of the impact to the average investor. We're going to have to see. We're getting a lot of information right now. But as I've talked to some of my friends sort of in the wealth management community, remember, I speak mostly with institutions, but as I've talked to some of my friends in the wealth management community over the past year or so, you know, I've heard things like, well, my clients aren't really involved in crypto. Their kids and grandkids have tried to get them involved, um, but they've said no. So, you know, for the moment, I still view this as a contained implosion, but we do have to watch it. There's a tremendous correlation between the S&P and Bitcoin. And we do view Bitcoin as a risk barometer for stocks. Stocks have been sort of defying the carnage that we've seen in that space recently, but we'll have to keep an eye and, you know, frankly, just just see how bad this is. It's something we've got to watch. Laurie, brilliant to catch up as always. Let's talk before year end. Laurie Calvacini there of RBC Capital Markets. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.